0: Welcome to the Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com. Good morning, Calvary. Good morning, mothers. Well, since it's Mother's Day, um, I wanted to bring a message that was uh, honoring to women. And what I want to do this morning is, is talk about one of the heroes of our faith. You know, God, there, there have been many heroes throughout history when I say hero I mean small H because we really know there's only one capital H hero and his name is Jesus right he's the only real hero in the story but we have some smaller heroes in our in in church history throughout the scripture and even after the scripture there have been many uh, people men and women who have made significant impact and I want to talk about one of those this morning and she is a woman you know God doesn't just use the men in the book right there are women in the book as well and so one of the people who I think is one of the most significant in terms of historical impact, one of the most significant heroes of the faith that we have, and her name is Esther. Everybody say Esther. We're going to look at Esther and the fast that changed history. So open your Bibles to the book of Esther. And just so you guys do know, for those who don't, my name is Joshua and I'm one of the pastors here. not just some random guy who jumped up on the stage to deliver a message today. The book of Esther. And here's here's my aim today. My aim is actually to give you the whole book of Esther in one sitting. Okay, so sometime between now and 3 o'clock this afternoon, all oh, the mother said, you better not. But this is going to be just a brief overview, and I want to start with a little bit of context, okay, a little bit of historical context. Any history buffs in the house this morning? Three of you. Well, I love history. My oldest sermon illustration, also sometimes called a daughter, uh, she got the history bug from me. So she's my history buff. Anytime we're at home together, if one of us are sick, we we plop down on the couch and watch uh, World War II and Civil War documentaries together. Uh, So she's my history buff. But I love history. I majored in history in college. It's just something I really enjoy. And so to tell a story, you have to set some context. You have to place it in its historical context, and also its geographic context. So the book of Esther takes place somewhere roughly around 480 B.C. And I say roughly, even though I was a history major, I'm not super good with exact dates, so I like giving just roundabout dates just to give you a general idea. So don't go study this week and send me an email and say, it was actually 479, you lied. Around 480-ish B.C., this unlikely hero Arises. Now, this story takes place in what we would call modern day Iran. So, if you're thinking about your globe, think about your map, think about where uh, Iran is today, and that's a, a generally about where the story takes place. And the story actually is not just a history story where we can look back and say, oh, that's a neat story. It actually reaches through time and beckons us perhaps even to be like an Esther who will contend for God's purposes in her day, and even more specifically, contend for God's purposes for the Jewish people. When I began to prep this message, Jeff, Jeff had asked if I wanted to do Mother's Day, which I, it didn't take me long to say yes. I don't know where this comes from in me, but it's actually one of my favorite Sundays to preach is Mother's Day. I don't know. There's something in me that just, I I really enjoy it. And so he said, well, since you enjoy it so much, would you like to teach Mother's Day? And I said, yes. And I began to think about this story of Esther not connecting the fact at first that we're in the middle of a 21-day fast for Israel. And so as I began to read the story, I'm like, wait a minute. The This story is about God raising up intercessors for Israel. So I'm kind of doing double duty today. I'm honoring women and teaching a message on a hero of the faith who is a woman. I'm also keeping us in that flow of praying and interceding for Israel. So the Holy Spirit kind of knew what he was doing. He's smarter than I am. I wouldn't have put that together on my own. Hey, that's enough from the peanut gallery back there. So, again, the context of the story of Esther. Now, we have to remember that in about 586 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. We remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar. So, Nebuchadnezzar comes over from Babylon, which again kind of think modern day Iran. He comes over and he destroys Jerusalem, completely destroys it. He lays siege to it at first and then destroys Jerusalem, 586 BC. And many, if not most, of the Jews were exiled. They were marched across the desert and they were exiled in Babylon, okay? After 70 years of being in exile, Just as the Lord had promised Jeremiah, he told Jeremiah, I'm going to exile my people, but after 70 years, I'm going to show up and do something. Well, uh, true to his word, after 70 years in exile, the Lord sovereignly, and this is a whole different sermon, I can't get into it, but the Lord sovereignly moves on the heart of an ungodly king to let the people go back to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild and there's three groups of people that go. The first group of people that go back to Jerusalem were led. They, they, they went under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. And under Zerubbabel, they begin to rebuild the temple. A little bit later, another group of people return to Israel under the leadership of a man named Ezra. And you can read that story in the book of Ezra. Then a little bit after that, there was another group that returned with a man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's job was to actually rebuild the city around where the the temple was, because the temple had been rebuilt. And so at the time of our story, we actually still have some Jews in what is now Persia. It's not called Babylon anymore. It's called Persia. There are still some Jews that never returned back. Okay, so when you read the story, you go, what are Jews doing In Persia, how did they get—well, that's how they got there. They were exiled, but then when they were able to return, not all of them returned. Some of them settled in the area, began to have families, began to have babies, and began to have grandchildren, and they just stayed there. So that's why we have some Jews in this area. And this story of Esther is recorded, obviously, in the book of Esther, and it actually takes place, if you're looking at your Bible, your Old Testament history— it takes place around the end of the book of Ezra and just before the book of Nehemiah, okay? So, so as you're reading through your Old Testament, you can put these things into context. Now, there's some characters we have to introduce for our story. In the story of Esther, we have some characters. The first guy that we need to uh, to know is going to be King something or another. You pronounce it however you want to pronounce it. Just make it up, okay? I'm going to call him Xerxes, even though historians aren't really sure if this king is Xerxes or Artaxerxes. They were both two different guys. So there, there's some debate on which guy this is. I'm going to say this is going to be King Xerxes because it's the easiest to pronounce, okay? So King Xerxes... He's the first guy we need to know. The next character we're going to encounter is Queen Vashti. She is King Xerxes' queen. The next character we need to know in this story is Esther. We also have a guy named Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is actually Esther's cousin who actually became her her overseer. He, He kind of took care of Esther. Then we have a man named Haman. Haman is going to be our bad guy, okay? Not a good fella. And then finally, we have a guy who makes a a brief appearance in the book uh, that's important. His name is Haggai. He is the king's eunuch. So we got Xerxes, Vashti, Esther, Mordecai, Haman, and Haggai the eunuch. All right, let's get into the story. Esther chapter 1. So in the third year of his reign, this Persian king Xerxes throws a ginormous party in order to show off all of his glory and his riches. Now, later on in history, we discover that one of the reasons he throws this big party, he gets all of his his military, all of the politicians, all of the leaders, all of the head guys from all of his region. And by the way, his region, if you want to just think of, Put your globe back in your mind. Esther tells us that Xerxes' rule and reign, his area stretched from India to Ethiopia. Okay? That's big, right? That's huge. All the way from India and Ethiopia and everywhere in between, that was his kingdom, okay? And so he gathers all of the main dudes, all of the, all of the politicians and the military leaders, and he brings them to his place and throws a feast because he's wanting to drum up support for a campaign, a military campaign that he's going to unleash on Greece, on the Roman Empire. Okay, it's not, not really the Roman Empire yet, but he's going to, he needs a whole lot of money and a military might to do that. And so that's why he's, he's throwing this big party. Now, when I say a big party, this was no ordinary party. This party was six-month feast. Blessed Redeemer. <laughs> Jesus. Six-month feast. So what I actually propose, sorry, Jeff, I'm going to... After this 21-day fast... No? Okay. It's worth a shot. A six month feast. You're talking about the riches and the wealth it would take. In fact, I read some historical, uh, some historians and some commentators that say even in this day, that was not only just big, it was unheard of. And one guy said, this actually might be the most expensive and elaborate party ever thrown in all of the history. So he throws this big party. And at the end of the party, the king said, we need to end this well. Let's throw another seven-day feast. Although this guy wasn't a good guy, I'm kind of starting to like him already. Seven-day feast. And in this feast, there was choice food, choice wine, and everybody was having a good time. But at the end of the seven days, the king gives a debasing and abusive command for his queen. So at the end of this thing, they're all drunk. They're all just being merry and having a good time. And the king does something nasty. He says to his men, go get my queen, because the ladies were having their own little banquet over there. Back in this days, the men and the women, they, didn't, they weren't going to party together, Okay. So he he says, go get the queen and tell her to come here. And I want to parade her around all my guys just so they know how awesome I am. And the queen replies back, I don't think so. I don't play that game. You're not going to treat me like that, like just some, no, that's not happening, dude. And she says no to the king. Well, this outrages the king. And the king gets together with his close guys and said, what are we going to do about this? And all these men basically said, you know what? If the queen, if it gets out that the queen was able to say no to the king, then when I go home and ask my wife something, she's going to feel emboldened to go, nope, I ain't going to do nothing for you. And so these men said, these men wanted to maintain that power structure and said, we can't let this get out because then all the women are just going to be saying no to everything we want them to do. So we have to, we have to do something. They said, so what do we do? And they said, well, here's what we do. We boot her out. We send a message to the women. So we boot her out. So what did they do? They did just that. They said to Vashti, the queen, you're done. You're out of here. You are no longer queen. You have no authority here. You have no place here. Bye-bye. So now the king goes, well, wait a minute. Hang on. Now what am I going to do? I don't have a queen. So he sends word to all of the entire region, to everyone from from Ethiopia to India, and he says, bring me the most beautiful women in the the whole region. Gather them up. Gather the most beautiful women, and I'm going to basically have a contest, and we're going to see... I'm going to choose my new queen out of all of the the fairest of ladies in the kingdom. So the word goes out, and they begin to gather all of the ladies. Well, one of the ladies that was chosen as a possible candidate for queen was a Jewish woman named Esther. Although no one at the time, other than Esther and and her friends and family, knew that she was a Jew. So they chose this woman as one of the possible candidates to become queen of Persia, and she was Jewish. So they brought her to the capital along with all the other ladies, and this is where the guy named Haggai comes in. He's the king's eunuch. Now, the eunuch was put in charge of helping to prepare all of these ladies to go before the king, and hopefully they were the ones that were going to be chosen. And so they went through uh, months. They went through, through a long time of these beauty preparations. I'm sure that court etiquette and different things like that to train these ladies on how to present yourself to the king and maybe get chosen as the queen. Now, after the preparation period was done, the women would go one by one before the king and just cross their fingers and pray and hope that he would extend his scepter and choose them. And in Esther chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us that when each individual would go before the king, they could take something from their chambers with them. They could take one item with them before the king to, to, to impress or to bless the king with. But when it came Esther's turn to bring something before the king, Esther asked the eunuch, basically, what does the king like? I don't want to bring before the king what I want to bring. I want to know what moves his heart. And so she she asked the eunuch, what does the king like? And she she brings that to the king. And when she goes before the king, the king is just undone. She she obtained great favor before the king. And then somewhere around 478 BC, she is chosen to become queen of the Persian empire as a young Jewish woman. Now remember, they don't know she's a Jew. That's important to the story. They don't know she's a Jew. Right around this time, Esther's cousin, who was also sort of her overseer, his name is Mordecai. Say Mordecai. Mordecai. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gates. So I'm sure the, that the king's palace, there were all these different uh, levels of courtyard and things. And he would, he would kind of hang out close there because he wanted to keep an eye on Esther. Now that she was kind of chosen, she was going through those beauty preparations and she was chosen as queen. He wanted to keep an eye on her. So he would hang around the palace a little bit. And he uncovers a plot to kill King Xerxes. He hears two guys talking, and they they were talking about killing the king, assassinating this king, and he uncovers the plot. Now we're going to have to push pause there because the, the 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 story stops right there. It picks up there later. That's going to become really important in our story. Okay, so right around the time Esther is chosen queen, her her uh, her overseer, her cousin. Mordecai uncovers a plot to kill the king, and he makes it known to her. She goes to the king, and these, the, the plot is foiled. They, they catch the guys. They put them to death, whatever they did with them then, and that, that's the end of it for now, but that comes in later. So now as the story goes, this is when we get to the part where we have a man named Haman. Everybody say his name. Say Haman. Haman is a bad dude. Okay, this is where the music in a movie would turn minor key, you know, and it would get dark and it would show him with this light shining. Haman's not a good guy. He's a bad guy. Now, Haman has been promoted to become the right hand man to the king. He was put into leadership over all of the king's princes who governed all of the various regions. So he was like the head cabinet guy, you know? If you're, if you're thinking about like our president, this guy would almost be like a vice president. I mean, he was he was up there. Now, it's interesting to note that as we see the way Haman acted and behaved and handled himself during this story, that Haman's name, I looked it up, Haman's name literally means a tumultuous noise. I just think that's interesting because this guy was was very much that. So Haman, bad guy, and he is full of himself. Haman loves himself. According to Haman, Haman is the man. Haman is the bee's knees. Haman hung the moon. Haman is the men of men. He is really full of himself. And that comes back to bite him later on in the story. So this promotion of Haman really got to his head. And wherever Haman went, he made sure that he was accompanied with much flair, extravagance, pomp, and circumstance. And in fact, chapter 3 of Esther tells us that all of those who were at the king's gate when Haman would ride out on his little horse, I'm sure it was a big horse, when he would ride out, he, he made sure everyone bowed to him. Everywhere Haman went, he goes, you got to bow to me because I am the man. Well, one day, he goes riding out on his little high horse, pun intended, and there's a man named Mordecai sitting at the gate. And guess what? Mordecai said, I ain't bowing to nobody but my God. That kind of reminds us of the old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? do you bow to this? I'm not bow. I only bow my knee to my God. Well, this infuriated Haman. Haman said, wait a minute. I'm the king's guy. Wherever I go, you bow and pay homage to me. And Mordecai said, this knee is not bending to you. Ain't going to happen. Well, Haman was furious. So, Oh, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar was pretty furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And what did he do with them? He threw them into the fire. But he was so furious, he didn't just throw them into a fire. He, He ramped it up a notch. He said, make the fire seven times hotter. Just shows you the level of his rage. It's not just, I want to get back at these guys. It's, I want to annihilate them. In the same way that happened with Nebuchadnezzar, this same thing happened with Haman. Haman says, that's it. I'm going to get you. But his fury was so full that he goes, I don't want to just get you, Mordecai. I want to get all of your people. Now, they knew Mordecai was a Jew. So he goes, not only am I going going to get you, Mordecai, for not bowing, I actually want to get all of your people. So... Haman goes to the king and says, king, there is a particular people group. He was really vague on purpose. See, manipulation and stuff, sometimes you can be really vague in order to manipulate a situation. He goes, there's a certain people group who do not pay homage to the king. They won't bow a knee to the king They're not about your kingdom and your rules. They want to follow their own rules. In fact, they probably want to even overthrow you, king. This particular people group, I want your permission to squelch this thing and just get rid of them. Just kill them all. Kill them all. Now, remember, he's not just talking about the ones in the neighborhood. He's talking about the ones from from India to Ethiopia and everywhere in between. He is calling, Haman is calling for the annihilation of every Jew in the known world at the time. Evil, evil, evil. Well, the king just knows, hey, there's a people group out there that's wanting to get rid of me and not follow my laws. So he goes, Haman, yep, go ahead. You gather the princes, you make the edict. And he said, let the edict go forth. That on this particular day, In the near future, there's a a day in there. On this particular day, everyone know that wherever you see a Jew, kill him. Well, Mordecai hears this news in chapter 4. Mordecai hears the news, and he immediately begins to mourn and to fast and to pray. Esther then comes to Mordecai. She sees that Mordecai is so distraught. She comes to Mordecai and she goes, Hey, M- M- Mordecai, what, what's going on? Why are you mourning? And Mordecai tells Esther, Here's what's going on. Every Jew in the known world is going to be annihilated on this particular day, and the king signed this edict. And I'm sure he probably whispered to her, Oh, by the way, Esther, remember something. You're a Jew. You think you're going to escape this? Look what he did to his last wife. He's okay with, you know, I mean, so this was a serious deal here. Serious conflict. And we see Esther's dilemma in Esther chapter 4. Because Mordecai says, Esther, you have to do something to stop this. You have to do something. And she goes, what am I going to do? he goes you have to go make supplication this is esther 4:8 go to the king and make supplication to him and plead before him for your people esther he said, your people and look at es- look at esther 4:11 turn i mean cuz you're already there in the book just turn over to chapter 4 verse 11 this is esther's dilemma a major dilemma for esther esther chapter 4 verse 11 she says any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king, who has not been summoned by the king, well, there's only one law to that person. Put him to death. Except for the one that the king holds out his scepter. That person may live. And then she reminds Mordecai, by the way, I have not been summoned. (laughs) She goes, let me tell you something about the king, Mordecai. Anyone who goes before the king that he hasn't invited there as Gomer Pyle would say, you kill him dead. Just kill him dead right there on the spot. Unless the king holds out the scepter, then that lucky person may get to live. And she goes, and Mordecai, he hadn't invited me. This is a big-time dilemma. And let's look at Mordecai's response. This response from Mordecai may have changed history as we know it. Mordecai responds back to her, and in essence, he says, Esther, if the king annihilates all the Jews, what's keeping him from killing you once he finds out you're a Jew? And how do you know, Esther? This is not word for word. Some of y'all were looking in your Bibles. I don't see that. This is my interpretation. He says, how do you know, Esther, that God did not give you favor with this king and put you into this position today to do something about this. You think maybe God just chose you just willy-nilly and just, oh, well, whatever, queen, we'll just let her become queen. He goes, what if, Esther, you're here right now in this position so that you can do something about this? And that's that famous phrase that we quote often, he says, Esther, I believe God has put you here, and you guys finish the phrase for me, for such a right? We know that. We quote that all the time, right? And we can apply that to different aspects of our life. But let me tell you, in the context of that phrase, the context of that phrase for such a time as this is related to intercession for Israel. Intercession for the Jewish people. God has put you here. For such a time as this, Esther, to be an intercessor, to be one who stands in the gap between evil and the Jewish people, to intercede on their behalf—that's the context of that phrase. So we, yes, we can use it in other contexts, but just know for such a time as this. Let me let me ask you this: for all of you in this room right now, let me let me ask you the same stuff that Mordecai asked Esther. What if God has allowed you to be born today in this? You weren't born today, but born today and put you here, linked you up with this people, allowed you to walk the earth in this generation for such a time as this. What if he goes God, in his sovereignty, looking through the corridors of time, said there will come a day in the future that the Jewish people are going to need the greatest movement of intercession the world has ever known. And I need some people to be born then who will say yes to that calling, who will be like Esther and say, I will do it. I just gave the story away. Spoiler alert. She's going to do it. But what if you're here in this generation for such a time as this? Guys, the the number of intercessors that are being raised up around the globe, not just during this 21 days, but after this 21 days is unprecedented. Never before has this many people on the planet with one heart at the same time been praying for Israel. It's never happened. And God saw fit for you to be here to be part of it. That's, that's, a high, that's a high calling. And that's what's happening here with Esther. So Esther responds to Mordecai when he pushes back a little bit. And let's look, I want you to, I want you to read this together. F, Esther 4:16. Mordecai says, Are you not here for such a time as this? And here's what Esther says. Verse 16 of chapter 4, go, she's talking to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews who are present in, in Shushan, which is their, their little city there, fast for me. Don't drink or eat for three days. She said, my maids and I will also fast. And then look at this, my goodness, this phrase just hits me in my spirit every time. She says, So, Mordecai, I will go to the king, which, by the way, is against the law, and if I die, I die. This young woman said, The Jewish people, my people, are in such need. There's such need of an intercessor, someone who will stand on their behalf. This is going to be costly. And this young woman says, bring it on. If I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. This is worth it for me. It was worth it for her to give her life for the sake of the Jewish people. You see the same heartbeat in Paul. Did Paul not say, if it means that all the Jews are saved... Let me be separated from God forever. Paul was basically saying, I will go to hell for eternity. If it means, if I die, I die. Guys, this 21-day fast is costly. Standing on behalf of the Jewish people is costly. But Esther said, let's do it. If it means my life, let's do it. This also reminds me of someone else named Daniel. Daniel was also in this area. His story takes place in in the the, the same place. And Daniel, who from an early age, it was part of his daily routine, three times a day, he would get on his knees and he would pray towards Jerusalem. And then the king at his time said, oh, here's my edict. You can't do that anymore. You can't pray. You can't pray to your God. What was Daniel's response? By the way, they said, if you do pray to your God, there will be dire consequences. So what does Daniel do? Daniel says, okay, you're telling me it's going to be costly if I pray for Jerusalem. So Daniel goes up, opens his window in front of everyone, gets on his knees, and in essence says, if I die, I die. And he prayed. And they threw him in the lion's den because of it. It's costly. But do we have the heart that says, It may cost me some things, but it's worth it. It's worth it. I will go. And if I die, I die. Well, this takes us to chapter 5. We're going to wrap this up. Chapter 5. So Esther goes before the king. And I assume at this point, maybe her, her knees are knocking a little bit, right? She's like, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm ready. She goes before the king, and the king is so captured by the beauty and his love and affection for his bride, he extends the scepter to her and says, Oh, queen, I love you so much. Tell me what it is you want. And listen to what he says. He goes, I'll even give you up to half of my kingdom. Let me remind you again from India to Ethiopia. That is a lot of kingdom, right? He said, Esther, I love you so much. I'm so captured by you. If you just tell me what it is you want up to half the kingdom, it's yours. Well, I'm going to summarize this for the sake of time. Esther says to the king, okay, king, here's what I want. Now remember, she's got a, there's a pretty big prayer request (laughs) <laughs> on her list right now, right? She says, King, here's what I want. I want you to attend a, a banquet with me. I'm going to make a private dinner for you. And I want you to invite your ever so lovely right-hand man, Haman. <laughs> now, isn't it interesting? Now, let's think with our, let's look at this with spiritual eyes. The bride Though having a need to bring before the king, before she moves to change her outer circumstances, she goes, my main aim, I just want to romance the heart of my king. I want to romance my king. I want to love on my king. Yes, I've got my prayer list. Yes, I've got some things that need to be taken care of, but I want to romance my king. She wanted to move his heart. So she plans a banquet. It's her, and by the way, this is called in the story. It's called a banquet of wine. This would, we we would we would consider this like the you know candlelight and the little roses and the you know maybe the little you know cello player and the violin player and the music. This was a romantic feast. This banquet of wine, and she brings the king, invites Haman, and they come and they feast. Now, Haman, again, is full of himself. He goes home after this thing and tells his wife. He goes, guess what, baby? I was the only one other than the king and Esther who was invited to this party. He was so, I mean, he thought he was something. They only invited me. Aren't I special? So at this banquet... The king says, okay, I'm going to ask you again, Esther. You've got me. You've got me wrapped around your finger, Esther. I am so in love with you. You've, oh, you've outdone yourself. Please tell me what is it you want. I mean, he's given up, at then he goes, I'll, I'll, I'll give it all. Just, I'll give you half of my kingdom. Please tell me what you want. Esther says, okay, here's my moment. King, if I found favor in your sight. Would you come to a private banquet with me tomorrow? She throws another feast for the king. Yet again, she says, I want to move my king's heart. And by the way, invite that Haman fellow again. I want him to see this. Ah, this is where it gets good, y'all. So, here's what happens. At the second feast... At this point, the king is just, he's so frustrated because he's so in love. He's like, uh, Esther, if you don't tell me what you want, I'm going to explode here. Please, I want to give you whatever it is. I know there's something. I know you have it. You're something you want to bring to me. I need you to tell me what it is. And here's, here's Esther's response. She says, King, there is a plot to kill me and all of my people. Someone is wanting to kill me, my family, my friends, everyone I know, and everyone with my heritage wants to annihilate us. And the king says, "Uh uh-uh, not on my... Who who would do such a thing to my queen? No one's going to lay a hand on my queen. And at this point, she cuts her eyes over to the corner of the room. And I imagine Haman's eyes... Get as big as half dollars, man. He's like, she's a Jew? What have I done? She unfolds the whole plot right there before the king. The king gets so angry. He can't even, he's, he's so beside himself with anger that, that his right-hand man would dare to lay a hand on his bride. The king just up and runs out of the room. He bolts. Gone. And Haman, who is left in the room with Esther, runs to Esther. Guys, get this. The enemy doesn't run to the king to plead for his life. He runs to Esther and pleads for his life. Beloved, the authority... That we have as the bride of Christ comes from the fact that the bridegroom is in love with us. You see, Esther understood something. Esther understood that the most powerful place in the kingdom is not the throne of the king, it's the heart of the king. That's where power flows. That's where her authority comes from. And that's why she invited Haman to the banquet. Did you wonder why on earth she would invite Haman to the banquet of this romantic dinner between her and her king? She wanted Haman to see how much the king loved her. She wanted Haman to witness the zeal and the passion that came out of the eyes of the king. So when the plot was unfolded, the enemy knew she has authority. She has authority. She has authority. And he goes and he throws himself at the feet of the bride, at the feet of the queen and says, give me my life. Well, when he does this, the king walks back in. (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh-oh. So it, it, remember, culturally in that day, they didn't sit up in little pub tables when they ate, right? They actually reclined. It was like a, so, the, so there were these like little couch things with the little backs and pillows, and so they reclined. So when Haman threw himself at the feet of Esther, it says he threw himself over the couch onto the couch where she was sitting, and in perfect dramatic timing, that's when the king walks in. The king says, Haman, not only are you, do you want to like murder all of my wife's, my bride's, people, and her, now you're going to assault her in my chambers? I don't think so. So then they take Haman, they bind Haman, and they hang Haman. And again, I had to skip this part of the story. They hang Haman on some gallows that Haman actually had made for Mordecai. Because you remember, Mordecai wouldn't bow before Haman. And Haman says, Mm-mm. That's when he said, I'm going to kill you and all the Jews with you. And the way he was going to kill Mordecai, he was going to hang him. So he built gallows. And they were sitting right out there. Again, this is so dramatic. You can't make this stuff up. The king says, that's it. We're going to get you, Haman. You're trying to assault my wife. You're going to kill her and all of her people. And two of the king's men said, hey, king, there happens to be some gallows hanging right outside here. Oh, what do you know? Great timing. So they hang Haman. He's dealt with. He's done. But here's the last thing. The king has already said an edict. The king has already voiced his edict that all of the Jews are supposed to be killed on this particular day, right? What are we going to do? So Esther and Mordecai said, okay, now that we've dealt with Haman, we've uncovered the plot. King, can you just make an edict saying that the other edict was is is, is void? He goes, uh, yeah, about that. I can't do that. A king's word is a king's word. A king's edict cannot be overturned. Uh-oh. What are we going to do? So the king said, well, here's what we do. So, uh, I'm sorry, Esther and Mordecai said, okay, well, can we make, King, you just need to make a new edict that says all of the Jews can defend themselves. So they know ahead of time, they can't just walk down the street and get killed. They can actually go after the people who are trying to kill them. They can defend themselves. And look what the king says. The king looks at Mordecai and Esther and says, i got a better idea. You write the edict. You write the edict. Now, this stood out to me for the first time. I've read and and, and I've taught this book. I've studied this book. And this week, as I was prepping for this message, I had never seen that part before. If you want to see it for yourself, you can turn there. It's chapter 8, verse 8. They said, King, help, write an edict. He said, you write the edict. Now, what does that mean? Why, why should that stand out to us? Beloved, do you realize what kind of authority he, he gave to the bride? He said, yes, I could write the edict, but better yet, you write it. I authorize you. I commission you. I anoint you. I give you all the authority that I have. You actually write the edict. And then he says this, and then you stamped the edict with my royal seal. Only a king could do that. But he gives the authority to the bride of his affection to decree a thing in his name. Yet again, we just want to ask you the question, do you know who you are as the bride of Christ? Do you know the authority that we have? Because the king is so in love with us. This passage reminds me of Psalm 149 when he says, Here, this, he said, this, 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 all of the saints, all of the saints have this privilege that the high praises of the Lord that come out of our mouths can execute the written judgments of God. This honor have all the saints. Are you a part of all? I'm a part of all. So in this 21 days, as we're praying, as we're singing, as we're interceding, do that from the place of authority. Because we have authority. Where does our authority come from? It comes from the intimacy we have with the king. It's intimacy-based authority. And so they do. They put out the edict. They put out the edict in, in all of the land, and it says, hey, Jews... You can defend yourselves, arm yourselves, take care of yourselves, and they did. And everywhere this edict, this new edict went, verse 16 of chapter 8 said, and everywhere that this edict went, when the Jews heard it, it says, the Jews had light, gladness, joy, and honor. Esther 8.16 that was another one I had, that, that had never stood out to me before in all my years of, of reading this and studying this book. And that word light actually most of the time is translated dawn. It's the breaking in of light. Everywhere that this new edict went, there was a breaking in of light which led to joy and gladness in their hearts. And look at verse 17 of chapter 8. This is the last verse. And in every province and every city where the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy, gladness, a feast, and a holiday. And then many of the land became Jews. That was the third thing I'd never seen before, Pastor. And many in the land, many of the people in the land became Jews, meaning they began to worship the God of Israel. Do you see the the progression here? God raises up intercessors for Israel, which leads to the salvation of Israel, which leads to revival in the nations and a great number of people beginning to worship the God of Israel. Okay, only one of y'all got that. God raises up intercessors for Israel. What happens? Israel is saved. What happens? The nations begin to worship the God of Israel. That's better. Is that not what Paul tells us in Romans 9, 10, and 11? That's what Paul tells us. He says, when the Jews begin to see their Messiah and worship their Messiah, he said, for the nations, it'll be like life from the dead. We call that revival. When something is dead and then it's not, it has been revived, right? That's called revival. So this young woman, this young Jewish woman living in Babylon, or it was Persia at the time, this young Jewish woman in a foreign land takes a stand and says, I don't care what it costs. I'm going to stand on behalf of my people. And it led to their salvation, which led for revival in the nations. What if you were put here for such a time as this? Would you stand with me? We hope you've enjoyed this episode from Calvary Community Church Podcast. For more content and information about Calvary Community Church, please visit our website at calvaryhouston.com.